0: I had a dream about this place. to episode 27 of Ghost Stories for the End of the World. Hope you're good. Remember we're on Twitter now at Ghost Stories End where you can see me grappling in real time with my desire to grow the show and my innate northern distrust of popularity and being liked and other people on the internet. It is a journey that we can embark on together. Um, also, obviously, I'm sure I don't need to tell you that this week also marks the 20th anniversary of the resignation of Conservative Party leader William Hague after the Tories were given a, a real drubbing by Tony Blair's New Labour. I'll be I'll be lighting a candle after I finish this. So tonight, at long last, we are talking about LSD and MK Ultra, and we're going to be looking at the political and social functions of acid and the supposed purposes of the CIA's mind control experiments. And then in the second half of the episode, we're going to kind of examine the theory that has been long cherished by conspiracy researchers that the CIA deliberately flooded the counterculture with LSD in order to um, subvert it and disrupt a potential you know, revolution. When you first dive into this topic, um, the the immediate thing you'll encounter is the claim that in the early 1970s, a number of whistleblowers went to the American media and exposed a series of highly unethical and uh, even illegal abuses of power by U.S. security services, uh, the U.S. military and the CIA spying on American citizens, uh, the agencies truly fucked up experiments with drugs and brainwashing on human test subjects, uh, the FBI's COINTELPRO program, uh, assassination operations, wiretapping, infiltration, you name it. And the story goes that the courageous journalists of the US press uh, were outraged, so they set to work exposing the crimes of the u.s government uh, the church committee and the rockefeller commission followed the boys at langley and quantico did some soul searching took a telling off and new rules were brought in limiting the power of what they could they could get up to so also all of this activity we're told stopped then and there they they, they pivoted and reformed and You know, on its face, we know in 2021 that none of this is accurate. The leaks to the press were likely driven by factional warfare inside the US security state, you know, factions like the Yankees and the Cowboys. Um, As much as whistleblowers having a sudden crisis of conscience and the CIA and the FBI and the military had been given ample time to destroy especially sensitive documents and get their stories straight before they were brought before the church committee or, or Rockefeller. And in fact, Rockefeller's main purpose was to help the CIA bury the truth about the worst of its activities while the Snowden leaks and the way that the modern internet is used by security agencies and the enhanced interrogation program of the war on terror. That all demonstrates that they simply renamed most of the more egregious operations and continued pace. What they absolutely couldn't continue in-house, they franchised out to client states around the world in a kind of a kind of grim echo of the the already grim neoliberal turn that was happening in, in wider society. Uh, we'll get into all of this a little ways down the road. The second claim you'll encounter is that MK Ultra was driven primarily by Alan Dulles and the CIA's rabid paranoia about the power and influence of the Soviet Union. Now this isn't entirely false, but there is quite a lot of historical context and important information that's been wiped from this version. Of events Uh, so yeah in this version um, the security state decided that the reason US troops who were taken prisoner during the Korean War had started to say an awful lot of crazy shit about the US being a force for ill in the world you know confessing to spraying crops and villages with bioweapons and committing other war crimes and atrocities well uh, that to Alan Dulles and people like him it was pretty obvious why they were saying that these fine American boys were victims of red brainwashing. Uh, they'd forgotten the smell of sweet apple pie cooling on the windowsill. And the pinkers had deleted their patriotism and replaced it with godless communism. So we're expected to believe here that the CIA truly believed that these guys had been mentally destroyed and rebuilt to become mindless commie automatons and that the socialist countries were soon going to extend this this mind control to the free world but there were good reasons for the cia to make every effort to discredit these uh, american pow's and what they had to say the u.s military had actually been committing an astonishing array of atrocities in korea Uh, they dropped half a million tons of bombs on the country And they killed an estimated 20% of the population. And that's a conservative estimate, by the way. Some people put it as high as 30. They also turned what became North Korea into a slaughterhouse with village after village being wiped off the map. And the evidence for US use of biological weapons is pretty conclusive too, at least in my opinion. Uh, For example, the Stevenson Report, issued just five days after the Korean War began, contains the line, We should not deny ourselves the use of biological weapons or use them only in retaliation. And the Pentagon spent upwards of $350 million on an intensive bioweapons research program to say nothing of the the CIA's own project, codenamed MK Naomi. uh, And we'll be talking about MK Naomi later in this series. But for now, what we need to know is that a declassified memo from 1967 refers to three separate incidents where weapons developed under the auspices of Naomi were successfully deployed in the field. We also had the appearance of diseases that were new to Korea, such as um, viral hemorrhagic fever, and the fact that the Chinese and the Soviets were sufficiently convinced of the presence of bioweapons and um, weaponized viruses that the People's Liberation Army distributed millions of doses of vaccines and set up at least 60 quarantine facilities throughout the country to help bring these diseases under control should give us pause for thought. Um, The CIA did such a good job of controlling the narrative here though, that the Korean War And more specifically, the war crimes committed by the US military is still a politically explosive topic for historians, even today. Now, we've previously said there is nothing new under the sun. And here we have a really great example of how, even when journalists try to be critical of the US state, They can't quite stop themselves inserting a kind of get out clause for the actions of their government and limiting the issue of imperial aggression or systemic corruption to a few specific individuals. So Trump didn't win because of the myriad of political and social problems caused by previous administrations and the corporate state. He won because Russia posted memes on the internet. And Alan Dulles and the CIA didn't start performing experiments on unwitting U.S. civilians because they were driven by imperial interest or power crazed and looking for total control. No, they, they were driven to these depths by the far greater depravity of their enemies. And in a sense, you know, if you follow this interpretation of history to its logical conclusion, the agents who ran MKUltra were also victims of history, as much as the people that they they spiked with LSD or mutilated at black sites. They were pushed into doing that by the evil USSR and the evil communist world order. But in actuality, the seeds of MKUltra were planted during World War II when both the Allies and the Nazis began to explore the potential of drugs and mind control. And the alleged uh, communist brainwashing program that Alan Dulles cited as the trigger for MKUltra was seized on later to justify retroactively the abuses of the US military and the agency. The theory that we've examined a number of times throughout the series holds true. The Nazis weren't defeated, they were simply purged of their more excessive elements and what was left was incorporated into the, the new emerging liberal paradigm. So not only was the CIA's search for mind control a continuation of Allied experiments, it also built on what the Nazis had first discovered in the death camps of Europe. And the social and political implications of this have been titanic. And they're they're still not really understood today. We still pretend that MKUltra was a wacky, mad scientist plot that led to a dead end and it was it was canceled and done and forgotten. But what the CIA learned in the 50s and the 60s has been applied to all manner of other projects in social engineering, including the modern internet. So in a very real sense, all of us live in a world that has been fundamentally shaped by MKUltra. As the Allies swept across Europe, they discovered the concentration camps and the mountain of research that Nazi scientists had gathered during the Holocaust. Now, World War II had offered an unprecedented opportunity for these scientists to use live human test subjects in an environment that was free of all ethical and legal considerations. The revulsion of the Allied troops on the ground wasn't shared all that much by some of the OSS and SIS officers who arrived to investigate places like Dachau. And there seems to have been an initial wave of shock. And then little by little, Allied military officers and spooks and scientists here and there started to pour over these archives to see what they could learn. Because the Nazis had kept meticulous records and the ones who were transported to America under Operation Paperclip were happy to add further insight and understanding to their new paymasters in the States. Uh, Dr. Hubertus Strughold was almost as important to the Americans as Werner von Braun, and he and his team had used inmates at Dachau for a number of experiments designed, among other things, to try out experimental drugs, uh, push the limits of the human body and mind, and observe the effects of various biological weapons that they were developing. And detainees at Dachau were shot to test new coagulant medicines. They had exploratory surgeries performed on them without anesthetic they were injected with petrol and oil they were infected with malaria and typhus and smallpox and rabies or they were locked into high pressure altitude chambers and crushed or doped with mescaline and heroin then dropped in ice water or tossed into furnaces all to see how they reacted to abrupt changes in temperature um wound up settling in texas and NASA consulted with him to help develop medical treatments in outer space. They even went on to call him the father of space medicine. The discovery of all this research material neatly complemented the OSS's own interest in the use of drugs in interrogations and psychological warfare. In fact, in 1942, Wild Bill Donovan, who was one of the, the founding fathers of US intelligence, he'd actually gathered some of the top allied scientists and intelligence operatives and he'd given them the task of developing drugs and chemicals that could be used to extract information from prisoners of war and captured enemy spies. So they were truth serums, essentially. And the goal was to completely break down the psychological barriers of a detainee. Uh, So initially cannabis was considered a promising avenue but the results were inconsistent. Sometimes a test subject would unwind and relax and talk at length and other times they get paranoid and refuse to say a word. And as with every other drug proposed, OSS officers and scientists, you know, experimented freely on themselves and each other because why wouldn't you? In 1947, the year that the CIA was formed, in fact, Naval Intelligence initiated a program called Project Chatter, Uh, The Navy was interested in developing a method of obtaining information from the enemy that didn't entail any physical coercion. So if they could induce the enemy to freely volunteer classified information, and they could then be paraded before the media without a scratch on them, the thinking was that that would be a huge PR victory. And mescaline was their preferred chemical, just like it had been with the Nazis. Um, Hallucinogens were superb at disrupting normal thought patterns and breaking an individual's will and as the nazi documentation showed uh, the ss had actually had some success dosing prisoners of war and concentration camp detainees with the drug and getting them to spill what they knew about allied attacks and potential inmate uprisings and escape attempts as the nazis had also discovered however Interrogators could often trigger paranoid rants or panic attacks that led to catatonia as much as anything else in test subjects. So the Navy and the CIA turned to peyote. Uh, consistency was always a problem, and it was here again. Uh, while these drugs proved useful in you know, disrupting and unsettling test subjects, they, they couldn't be relied on to produce 100% worthwhile information. The possibility of mind control and hypnosis has always been of great interest to intelligence agencies. Uh, The Gestapo had made their own attempts to use mescaline in order to rewire the human mind. And the CIA, building off this research, began to experiment with what they called the limbo state or the twilight zone. And this is where test subjects would be given a heavy dose of tranquilizers, And then just before they slipped fully into unconsciousness or even a coma, they'd be hit with a blast of cocaine or amphetamines or some kind of cocktail containing both of them. And as the body kind of struggled to deal with these conflicting chemical demands, subjects would be interrogated and scientists would try to extract a code word the subjects had been told not to reveal at the start of the experiment. And in tandem with this, the CIA embarked on a new research path where they attempted to create a state of narco-hypnosis to kind of prolong and control the limbo state and ensure total compliance during interrogation sessions. In addition to this, the agency began to look at ways of inducing amnesia in someone they interrogated so the enemy would never be aware of what had happened to them or what they'd revealed while they were in this, you know, twilight zone, this limbo state so the idea was pick a guy dose him get solid intel make him forget what happened and then send him home without a mark on him and if you could achieve this you know if you could learn how to wipe someone's memory the next logical step and you know i'm using logical very loosely here but to them the next logical step at that point surely is to figure out a way to implant a false memory that makes the subject think they were doing something else while they were being interrogated by the CIA. Naturally then, this triggered a bunch of what ifs. Um, What if you could implant top secret information in a subject's mind without them even being aware of it, send them to a location and have an agent there use some kind of hypnotic trigger to unlock this information? And if you can get to that point, would it be possible to implant a suggestion in a subject's mind? So say a suggestion that they steal documents at a certain time and place and deliver them to a certain location. And if you can move them to action like that, could you also program them for other purposes? Could you make them kill someone, for instance, even if it was someone they loved? We are getting a little ahead of ourselves here, but right from the beginning, You have to know that this was something that was discussed everywhere at Langley by the officers and the scientists involved in these projects, uh, from the meeting rooms to the staff canteens. Alan Dulles told the world in 1953 that he believed the Soviets and the Chinese had actually created programmed assassins and that they had an invisible network of sleeper agents who would awake and kill on command when triggered. Now, I suspect that he didn't believe this at all, but it was all he needed to say to receive a blank check from the US government in this prevailing atmosphere of of paranoia. Now, I don't think that Dulles sincerely believed the Soviets had created mind-controlled assassins, But I do believe that he certainly thought it was entirely possible for the CIA to create these people. The benefits of mind control are pretty obvious from an intelligence point of view, and not only as a weapon against captured enemies, but as a tool to keep your own guys in line. And Dulles knew better than anyone that spies generally are exactly as described in the work of people like John Licari. You know they're hustlers they're greedy they're manipulative they're arrogant and they are entirely immoral and many of them are outright psychopaths so if you as a cia boss can find a way to ensure not only that your agents won't talk if they get captured but that they'll never defect they'll never go off the reservation they'll never try to come after your job very important to men like alan Dulles. Um, And if you could, if you could ensure that they'd be perfect automatons who did exactly what they were told when they were told to do it, that would be a huge breakthrough, particularly in an outfit like the CIA, which was full of ambitious, devious social climbers. And then take it a step further and remember that the CIA, for good reason, is sometimes referred to as capital's invisible army. So imagine a world where they could program everybody to be mindlessly subordinate to authority from their parents, to their teachers, to their bosses. You know, imagine a world where they'd never join a picket line or form a union or push for more democratic oversight and control. How much would that be worth to Wall Street and the industry titans that, you know, financed a lot of the CIA's activity? At the start of the 1950s, this idea of implanting information and hypnotic suggestions in a test subject wasn't being explored to its full potential at that point. But as early as 1951, the CIA was confident that it could, quote, "...maintain a subject in a controlled state for a much longer period of time than we had heretofore believed. Furthermore, we feel that by use of certain chemicals or combinations thereof we can, in a very high percentage of cases, produce relevant information. So here they're acknowledging that they found a way to ensure a relatively reliable confession from subjects, and they can also control the length of time that a subject is kept in a kind of a state of narco-hypnosis. But... There was still the maddening problem of how to stop subjects remembering what had happened to them. And you have to remember that this was an extremely freewheeling time. We've talked about this before. The money was cheap, creative thinking was encouraged, and no idea was too wild to be considered. There were solutions that ranged from, you know, blunt and obvious. Just kill them when you have the information you need. To more restrained, you know, if still cold. Have them committed to a psych hospital, for instance, or perform lobotomies on them. Um, And then you had more inventive and fanciful ideas. Why don't we experiment with UHF sound waves? Or try using focused microwave beams to delete parts of a person's memory. And this period of 1950 to 1953 is when the agency recognised that the whole project was too narrow in scope so they decided to expand their research into places like mental hospitals the world of academia prisons the military and scientific research labs and as always the need for plausible deniability meant that the cia couldn't be seen to be taking a direct role in any of this so roscoe hillenkota who was the director at the time He authorized the use of off-the-books money and the standard maze of shell companies and philanthropic foundations and frontmen to deliver the funding they'd need, and this became known as Bluebird. And crucially, the aims of the project now went further than experiments with truth serums or narco-hypnosis. A 1951 agency memo states, quote, Our objectives are broad and comprehensive, involving both domestic and overseas activities. Our aim is to create an exploitable alteration of personality in potential agents, defectors, refugees, and POWs, while taking into consideration the programs and objectives of other departments, principally the military services. Now, officially, this program did not exist. But as far as the... uh, information that's contained in that quote there, Note that they refer to both domestic and overseas activities. So at least as early as 51, we know, they have expanded this mind control research to other parts of the world, you know. Um, And they're they're also operating illegally on US soil. And as far as the exploitable alteration of personality line, um, People's first instinct, naturally, is to assume that we're talking, you know, programmed assassins, trigger words, women in polka dot dresses, etc, etc. But I should point out that there are all kinds of ways to alter and exploit someone's personality using drugs that don't entail brainwashing or mind control as such. So, for example, Um, a broke heroin addict who needs to keep feeding their habit, well, they're going to make for a, a pretty easily exploitable informant if you're a cop or a fed. And wheedling information out of them will rarely entail having to strap them down and hit them with strange audio frequencies and hypnotic light shows. All you have to do is dangle some money in front of them and let the withdrawal cramps do the rest of the work to get the outcome that you want, you know. And similarly... The CIA had some success using assets to dose people with coke or heroin and then kirk's information out of them while they were high. Or they could use assets to gradually create a crippling addiction in a target which they could then exploit later. We are going to get to the more out there stuff but what I want to emphasize here is that the targets of the CIA's mind control experiments were rarely going to be actual KGB agents or other enemy spies, and I sometimes think we get a little bit, we get a little bit carried away with the aesthetics of all this paranoia and intrigue, and we forget that you know, real people were caught up in this machine, and many of them had their lives absolutely destroyed. Um, the people the CIA was going to experiment on were largely the most vulnerable and marginalised people in US society uh, and elsewhere around the world. So addicts, the homeless, the mentally ill, minorities, the impoverished LGBT people, basically the kinds of people who wouldn't be believed if they spoke about what happened to them. So in other words, exactly the kind of people who were targeted for experimentation and extermination by the Nazis. Make no mistake, the CIA was engaged in extremely nazi shit and they knew it which is why all this secrecy was so extreme bluebird then became uh, project artichoke in august of 1951 and by 1952 the agency was openly asking quote Can we get control of an individual to a point where he will do our bidding against his will and even against his sense of self-preservation? And their thinking was revolutionized in a way once they started to experiment with LSD. Now, I'm sure you already know the story of how LSD was first created, but just in case you don't, we'll loop back to Switzerland in 1938 because there we have a scientist called Albert Hoffman and he's working as an executive researcher at Stanton at a place called Sandoz and he's studying ergot which is a rye fungus. Now if you listen to the Halloween special last year you'll remember that we talked about the hallucinogenic properties of ergot um, when it's administered in the right amount and too much can lead to something called Saint Anthony's fire which is a grisly disease that causes poisoning and gangrene and, and even death but there are some pretty strange incidents of mass hysteria throughout history that some historians think might have been caused by a town mill or bakery being contaminated by ergot fungus. So you have the dancing plagues, the epidemic of dancing plagues that occurred throughout Europe between the 10th and 17th centuries, roughly, uh, such as in Alsace in France in the summer of 1518. That's probably the most famous one. But in 1278, a group of 200 people began to maniacally dance on a bridge in Belgium, which collapsed and spilled all of them into the river muse The the Pied Piper folktale, that might have originated from the time when a group of children skipped and danced and sang without prompting and without stopping for 20 miles between Erfur to Arnstadt in 1237. And some people have even suggested that the Nuremberg Lights of 1561, I think me and Bradley discussed that in the UAP episode. But yeah, some people have suggested that that um, might have been a product of ergot poisoning. Uh, that's when hundreds of people reported seeing UFOs fighting in the sky. And then you have the, the Salem Witch Trials, even, of 1692, You know where people said they were being attacked by evil spirits and that they were seeing witches fly through the air and demons in the wheat fields. That could have also been a series of hallucinations triggered by um, ergotamine poisoning. So anyway, back at Sandoz, Hoffman had created 25 derivatives of ergot and he was hoping to discover um, a treatment for migraines. And if I'm not mistaken, LSD, what became LSD, he was actually hoping to kind of synthesize something that would improve uh, the circular, circulatory uh, system in people who had issues with their blood flow. But it, so it was the, the 25th, derivative which proved to be the drug that you know took the world by storm over the next few decades but at the time he'd observed nothing unusual when he administered it to test animals so he left it on a shelf for five years before deciding to return to it and make another batch for th- further study and in 1943 he spilled a small drop on his hand and gradually over a period of a few hours he took the world's first LSD trip and the ramifications of what he'd created were immediately apparent to him. Uh, Hoffman was a scientist, you know, but he was also open-minded enough to acknowledge the profound and even mystical nature of the trip that he'd taken. So although it had occasionally turned nightmarish, by the time he woke up the next morning, he described how everything he saw that day seemed to glisten and sparkle. You know, smells seemed more intense, colors were more vivid, his mind was calmer and more sanguine, and a kind of a lingering sense of euphoria helped him breeze through the day. His colleagues were initially skeptical, but he you know, encouraged them to begin experimenting with LSD-25, and a Dr. Werner Stahl, who was the son of Sandoz President Arthur Stahl, He was intrigued by the potential of LSD as a treatment for psychological illnesses. Um, He tried it himself and thought it was amazing. He published a report in 1947 where he described its calming effect on people suffering from schizophrenia. Um, He said it helped ease their paranoia and temper the worst of their hallucinations and mood swings and made them much more open and receptive to therapeutic intervention. Now his report caught the eye of the CIA and at the direction of Sidney Gottlieb, the CIA's mad scientist and the man who would eventually head MKUltra. The agency bought the world's entire supply of LSD for $250,000, that's the world's entire supply. So while chemists continued to manufacture it at Sandoz and elsewhere, there was a brief moment where every sample of the drug in existence was supplied by the agency, which they bought from Sandoz. Gottlieb directed his researchers to begin using it in their experiments, so labs, prisons, university campuses, military bases, psychiatric hospitals. Basically, anywhere the CIA was conducting its interrogation and mind control experiments, that's where LSD was being sent and at first the results were quite encouraging in terms of its effectiveness as a truth drug and in some cases researchers claimed a very high success rate in inducing amnesia in subjects but as more data was accumulated it became clear that it was in many ways as unreliable as peyote or mescaline and that consistently truthful information couldn't be extracted Unlike with the other substances though, Gottlieb and his team knew that LSD was way too important to discard out of hand. So what the CIA would need to do was readjust its thinking and investigate other strategic applications that acid might have. See, an acid truck could send a person anywhere from the depths of psychological trauma to almost transcendent experiences of universal love and fraternity. And in fact, psychiatrists working for Artichoke had reported great success in deliberately inflicting bad trips on test subjects. And they described how, as the terror and the paranoia mounted, subjects became extremely compliant, keen to share information, desperate for anything that would end the nightmare. And the drug was incredibly effective at destabilizing a person's sense of self and at destroying the ego and leaving them open to all manner of suggestion. Subjects were especially susceptible to psychological influence at the peak of a bad trip. And this is the moment that CIA researchers came to call the squeaky board. And the same problem of effective brainwashing persisted, you know, but their confidence in LSD as a potential wonder drug in the world of intelligence was was increasing. The same problem of effectively brainwashing a person persisted. It was still proving very difficult to achieve it, but their confidence in acid as a potential wonder drug in terms of its use in interrogations, uh, well, that was that was very high at this time. Another group of scientists and CIA agents were intrigued by the spiritual qualities of LSD. The chemical unlocks new modes of perception, you know, it interferes with the filter between the brain and the outside world. So you get a kind of overwhelming, mind-blowing experience of reality, completely unfiltered. And this convinced many of them of the existence of alternative realities or even different spiritual planes, and the CIA already had an interest in paranormal phenomena, uh, particularly extrasensory perception. So, as an adjunct to Artichoke, uh, the agency began to infiltrate seances and make contact with occult researchers, uh, you know, administering. LSD to participants, and then running controlled tests on people to see if they were able to tap into latent psychic abilities. And this would eventually lead to CIA agents turning on with psychics and clairvoyance in the late 1960s in order to attempt to contact operatives who'd been killed while on mission in order to debrief them. This all really happened, by the way. Another concern that Gottlieb and his colleagues shared was what if the Soviets were also experimenting with acid? Uh, how would American spooks and GIs keep their wits about them while operating in the field? And a suggestion was made to inoculate field agents against psychedelic warfare with micro doses of LSD to kind of build up their tolerance to, uh, to the trip. And this theme of the CIA inventing boogeymen to justify their own activity is something that, you know, we've discussed time and again on this show. It's something you see time and again throughout its history. And one kind of darkly funny anecdote I read concerned a Los Angeles psychiatrist called Nick Versal. The CIA approached him with a concern that the Russians had a stockpile of LSD that was bigger and more potent than their own. And not only that, but the CIA was deeply concerned that the Russians might dump some of this acid into an American city's water supply. So the agency asked Bursal if he could work out exactly how much LSD the Russians would need to effectively poison all of LA's drinking water. Bursal was an LSD researcher himself. He tested the effects of the drug on spiders and monkeys, and he assured them that from his experiments, it was actually very difficult to poison drinking water with acid because the chemicals used to sterilize the water also happened to instantly dissolve LSD. And the CIA agents who'd met Bursal reported what he told them back at Camp Dietrich, which was, you know, at that time, that was the head of all this research. And the agency then set to work successfully engineering a form of acid that wouldn't. dissolve or dilute in water. There were also a, a core group of CIA psychonauts who made a pact with each other to test LSD on themselves as much as was feasible. And they also agreed to spike each other without warning and completely at random. Gottlieb alone took about 200 acid trips, and this in turn helped him dream up even wilder and more extreme ideas for experiments and research projects. When you consider the chances of how many bad trips these guys inflicted on themselves, it's not too much of a stretch to wonder about the effects that this had on how they conducted CIA operations going forward. And these spook psychonauts were kind of like men in black inside the men in black. Um, there were plenty of CIA staff who had absolutely no idea that any of this was going on, or that they themselves had also come to be seen as fair game for experimentation. We'll get to more of that in a while. I think it goes back to that whole Ivy League mentality, you know, the, the boys having fun, enjoying some jips with fellow bonesmen, uh, even as they are, you know, trying to win the Cold War. And there are some pretty funny accounts of CIA officers stepping into Monday morning meetings, coffee in hand, and sitting down for a budget discussion, only to realize after 10 minutes that like, their paperwork is melting and the floor is talking to them. And I wonder if this ever happened during like, a particularly grim slideshow or movie reel you know, about the bombing campaigns in Korea or something. And I wonder how psychologically messed up they were as a result of that. Because as we're going to see, we do have one example of a CIA employee who had full confidence and belief in the goodness of the CIA and the goodness of the American global project. And then he had his worldview completely destroyed after he encountered acid. A question people ask a lot is how so many medical professionals could go along with MKUltra and how they could abandon their oaths to you know, help and protect people and subject them to torture and experimentation without informed consent. Well, simply put, to my mind, there are two major reasons for why things went the way they did. The first is the money and the prestige. Just like with their pet journalists, the CIA promised their pet scientists career advancement and enduring respect. Research grants came thick and fast for anyone who was willing to work with the agency. And it set up so many cutouts to facilitate all these experiments and channel all of this money that most of them will never be discovered. But organizations like the Hosiah Macy Jr. Foundation and the Study of Human Ecology, well, they're two of the better ones better known. the other reason is because the agency schemes appeal to the vanity of the clinicians and scientists involved Um, they told themselves that they were helping the u.s win the cold war while unlocking the secrets of the human mind and in so doing helping to create a better society now operating under that foundational lie it was inevitable that ethical boundaries would become easier and easier to overstep One of the more notorious medical professionals associated with mk ultra was a highly respected psychiatrist called dr ewan cameron he was the president of the world psychiatric association he operated out of the allen memorial institute in montreal once mk ultra was up and running Cameron received funding from the CIA to explore the possibilities of mind control using his own patients. So as many as 55 schizophrenics were subjected to his experiments, where they were placed under heavy sedation for months at a time, dosed with LSD on a daily basis, given electroshock therapy and confined to solitary rooms where tape-recorded messages were blasted at them for hours on end. The goal was to create a reliable form of, of what he called psychic driving. And if Cameron could succeed in de-patterning the brain of a schizophrenic and removing their mental illness, this would be an encouraging step towards achieving mind control. And Cameron's experiments were so extreme that many of his patients had their minds shattered. And survivors of the psychic driving experiments went on to sue both the US and Canadian government. We'll just briefly run through some events from 1953, however, because by the start of that year, Artichoke was beginning to suffer from a dwindling number of test subjects and a faltering sense of direction, and it was felt that, as with Bluebird, another retool and expansion was needed. And Sidney Gottlieb, the CIA's prize chemist, was the man who would help take the search for mind control to new uncharted places. And Gottlieb was the much-loved, highly idiosyncratic CIA chemist who lived in a converted slave cabin with his wife and kids and made his own cheese from the mountain goats that he kept on his ranch. And he oversaw the technical services staff. That in addition, he was a favorite of Richard Helms, who was Alan Dulles' number two. And Helms sent a memo to Alan Dulles at the start of April, 53, in which he emphasized the need to boost the agency's research capabilities and expand its program investigating the strategic use of chemical and biological weapons. Helms wrote, quote, aside from the defensive potential the development of a comprehensive capability in this field enables us to defend ourselves against a foe who might not be as restrained in the use of these techniques as we are so although artichoke was broadly the same as its successor it was directed by the office of security and the news that the technical services staff would be taking over the bulk of research well that created a vicious rivalry between the two departments particularly when OS staff discovered that Gottlieb wanted to start dosing members of the public completely at random. Now, Artichoke had already been conducting LSD experiments on prisoners, on soldiers, the mentally ill, and others for some time by this point. But the idea that MKUltra might expand this research to the American public at large. That seems to have offended them on a on a deep level, and a factional battle for control of the program ensued. Uh, so it included, you know, petty tit for tat um, actions like sending members of staff to spy on each other um, and trying to humiliate the other side. Uh, one example of this is when the office of security crew attempted to spike the punch bowl at the technical service group's Christmas pie. Dulles would formally approve this new program on April 13th, 1953, and the project was to be top secret and exempted from any financial control. In fact, it was also made exempt from direct oversight. Dulles and Helms knew full well the implications of what they were doing, and they didn't want to know anything specific about the program beyond how successful or not it was proven to be. Sydney Gottlieb was to oversee everything. And in fact, the prefix MK indicates that Gottlieb's technical services had won the fight with the OS, since this was the the prefix that was always used for their projects. Ultra indicated its top secret classification. Gottlieb sent a memo to his staff as soon as he heard the news informing them that Project Bluebird was finished and they were now beginning Project MK Ultra. As he put it, their job was to blast away the existing mind and find a way to fill the resulting void. There are a number of contradictions at the heart of Sidney Gottlieb's story. He was the CIA's chief scientist on Project MKUltra, a program that incorporated much of what the Nazis had been doing in the concentration camps of Europe. Yet Gottlieb was himself Jewish, and he happily worked alongside Operation Paperclip transplants. And in later years, he'd embark on a search for spiritual meaning and become a pacifist. You know, but. He invented a dizzying array of gadgets and poisons designed to kill world leaders and destabilize nation states that the US government took a dislike to. In retirement, Gottlieb and his wife became environmental campaigners and taught yoga. He was also, as Stephen Kinzer has pointed out, maybe the most prolific torturer of the 20th century. And many of the techniques he developed during his time in the CIA were later adapted and used at Guantanamo Bay and in the US military prisons of Iraq. So what actually happened to people who were subjected to MKUltra experiments? Well. The vast majority of the records were destroyed, so we don't know the full extent of what the CIA got up to, but what is in the public domain is is pretty fucking horrifying. Um, There are at least 150 sub-projects that were funded by the CIA pertaining to some combination of drug research, chemical warfare, and mind control. And in the interest of time and space, we're obviously, we're mostly looking at the role of LSD tonight. But Gottlieb was convinced that achieving full control of another human being's mind was possible and that it was also possible to program someone to do whatever it is you wanted once you had destroyed their ego. He established a global network of secret detention centers where CIA researchers could conduct MK Ultra experiments outside the jurisdiction of US law. Now, not that he was particularly concerned about the law, but plausible deniability and all the rest of it. Europe, Japan, and the Philippines all had CIA black sites where mind controlled research was conducted. Here in Britain, in fact, in the mid 1960s, SIS um, conducted their own experiments with LSD at the Porton Down Lab as an adjunct to the CIA's MK Ultra program and Royal Marine Commandos were dosed and their trips were filmed and, and documented at length. And Some of these guys went on to sue the government recently, actually. I have to try and find out if they actually won anything or not. So yeah, the scope of what has been uncovered is mind-boggling, but there is actually every indication it was a much bigger project and involved in far more things than we've so far been able to uncover. One of the CIA's favourite scientists was a Dr. Paul Hoch who served as a kind of MK Ultra consultant. He ran a number of experiments where a compound of LSD and mescaline was injected into the spines of schizophrenics, and while they were in a state of shock, they would be lobotomized without anesthetic. And after the procedure, he would dust them again to see how their brain activity compared before and after the surgery. And doctors and scientists at medical institutes across the country performed similar experiments, not just with acid, but with combinations of different drugs. Jolion West, who was another CIA scientist and ex- an extremely fucking bizarre character, he killed an elephant by giving it too much acid and then injecting a fatal overdose of amphetamines when trying to revive it. He was an MK Ultra fanatic. Um, possibly more of a zealot than Gottlieb actually about the possibilities of mind control and programming people and we will be getting into him very soon as well. There was Operation Midnight Climax which is where Gottlieb contracted a former OSS agent called George Hunter White to study the effects of a combination of sex and LSD on unsuspecting civilians. Uh, Midnight Climax originated in an operation where White redesigned a Greenwich Village townhouse to look like a, a kind of happening bachelor pad. And then he'd pose as an artist or a sailor and befriend guys in bars and take them back to his place where he would spike them with acid and subject them to interrogations. And he then moved to San Francisco and designed two new safe houses that were effectively CIA finance bordellas. You know, they were outfitted with microphones and electronic surveillance equipment and the sex workers were paid in drugs or at a rate of $100 a night and tasked with spiking johns with LSD, while White monitored everything that happened through two-way mirrors. The CIA also had its contacts in the US Army spike grunts with acid and then report on any and all effects that this had on their abilities as soldiers. And the army in turn became fascinated by the possibilities of weaponized hallucinogens um, they saw them as a, a low-cost way to quickly win the wars of the future and they wound up developing a, a nightmarish psychedelic of their own called bz which was immensely stronger and more potent than any hit of lsd and CIA agents themselves were surreptitiously dosed and monitored um, by their own bosses. One agent was given LSD for 77 days straight. Meanwhile, at an addictions research center at a public hospital in Kentucky, dozens of black patients were isolated in small rooms and subjected to 75 days of continuous LSD trips, with the strength of their dose being quadrupled every fifth day. The CIA-backed clinicians at the facility tempted new participants into the program by bribing them with heroin and cocaine. North Korean spies who were captured in the south were injected with cocktails of acid and morphine and mescaline and insulin and burned with cigarettes or hit with electric shocks to break down their resistance. Gottlieb was deeply interested in the potential of LSD to discredit foreign leaders and um, If you remember our American tabloid series, where he was the scientist we mentioned who suggested, you know, poisoning Fidel Castro with LSD, you know, so he'd make a fool of himself on live television and whatnot. Gottlieb was also responsible for the spiking of a CIA scientist called Frank Olson at a company retreat. Now, Olson, just like Gottlieb, had worked with many of the Nazi scientists who were brought to the States to help develop the US uh, security state after World War II, and Olson was stationed at Camp Dietrich, which was the headquarters of MKUltra, essentially. Olson was friendly with a British psychiatrist called William Sargent. Sargent was a CIA consultant, and he was also overseeing the British Secret Service's own experiments in mind control. Olsen told Sargent that he'd seen what we'd recognise as mk Ultra type experiments being conducted on captured KGB agents and people he said the CIA considered expendables, not only at Camp Dietrich, but at a secret CIA lab in Frankfurt that he'd visited in 1953. Olson said that many of these experiments were fatal and that he was beginning to question the morality of the CIA's activities. As MKUltra proceeded, um, according to Olsen's sons, uh, Frank began to have doubts about the program and his work for the agency, and in fact, the agency's role in US society. It was a, a kind of slow building sense of guilt, you know, this like innate, naive patriotism and his view of America colliding with like the grim reality of what the CIA was actually doing to try and win the Cold War. As someone higher up seems to have noticed Frank's increasing disenchantment and his son Eric later found a memo in his dad's personnel file that implied that Sargent, the British psychiatrist, had raised the alarm about Frank and that he was being closely monitored by his colleagues and superiors as a potential security threat. The MK Ultra crew always held a monthly retreat at a cabin in Deep Creek Lake in Maryland, And in November of 1953, over an evening drink at the cabin, Gottlieb informed everybody that they had just ingested an, in- an experimental truth serum, which later turned out to be LSD. And the trip provoked kind of hilarity and amusement in most of the people there. But for Frank Olson, it had an extremely dark effect on his worldview. And he returned home depressed and in something very close to a fugue state. Um, he stopped eating or speaking to his family and he woke up one night screaming about having made a terrible mistake and gradually over the next few days his mood grew darker and darker. Uh, Olsen's family now believes that the retreat had actually been a ruse to lure Frank into a situation where the agency could try to find out how likely he was to leak information about MKUltra and his work on the Army's bioweapons program if you heard our Halloween special last year, um, not to bring it up again, but you'll remember that we, we talked about the Ponsan Esprit um, mass hysteria of 1951. Now, officially it's been claimed that the epidemic of violent hallucinations and paranoia that gripped the town was the result of ergot poisoning. But we speculated in that show that it could also have been another MK Ultra experiment With LSD. Frank Olson was in fact in that part of France in 1951. And together with his possible knowledge of the deployment of bioweapons in Korea and other experiments on um, non consenting human test subjects elsewhere, it is possible the CIA was terrified at what he might expose if he resigned his position. About a week after the cabin retreat, Olsen and some colleagues flew to New York on business and they stayed at the Hotel Statler. And at two in the morning, Olsen is supposed to have run full tilt across his hotel room and swan dived out through his closed window. Um, And when the cops kicked open the door, they found his roommate, um, Robert Lashbrook, who was a a CIA company man to the bone, where he was sat calmly smoking a cigarette on the toilet. And the hotel switchboard operator says that a minute or two after Olsen had hit the pavement, she connected a call from his room to the home of a CIA doctor called Harold Abramson. And the caller told whoever was on the end of the line, well, he's gone. And the voice on the other end replied, gee, that's too bad. Seymour Hirsch. Um, who, yeah, he is basically a a conduit that gets used by the CIA to, you know, uh, as part of their inter-factional beefs that they have. But Hirsch has since claimed that the CIA was running a program at the time that was designed to identify and execute potential dissidents and Olsen had been classified as posing an extremely high security threat. What the CIA was researching and involved in at this time was so sensitive, and they viewed it as being of such importance that not even died in the wool company men like Frank Carlson were safe if it seemed like they were posing a, a threat to MK Ultra. Turn off your man, relax and float downstream. It is not dying It is not dying Lay down all thoughts Surrender to the void It is shining It is shining, yet you may see the meaning. So acid would have a revolutionary effect, not just on the CIA and the way that it approached espionage, but on Western society as a whole. And what we're going to talk about for this last stretch of the episode now is how likely or not it is that acid was spread through the counterculture of the 60s as part of some kind of disruption operation Um, and by extension how likely is it that in fact the entire counterculture was some kind of CIA operation right from the get-go. As Ian MacDonald notes in Revolution in the Head, the average dose of LSD in the 1960s was as much as 10 times stronger than any dose you can find on the street today. Acid would be touted by A parade of LSD gurus and new age spiritualists as a social cure-all. They viewed it as the key to unlocking humanity's potential and ensuring world peace. And McDonald points out, however, that it was also a wildly unpredictable drug. So most people who took it had a good time. They got laid, they expanded their horizons. They even made some really cool art, some of them. And it led plenty of people to social consciousness, you know, to become politically and socially turned on in a way that they might not have been without it, which might go some way towards explaining why Sidney Gottlieb um, became an environmentalist and a yoga instructor in later life. If he's taken 200 LSD trips by the time he's retired, it might have changed his outlook on the world. Who knows? But LSD also had quite a dark side to it. And... It left thousands of people stranded in some unknown inner void, their psyches shattered, completely disconnected from reality, uh, acid casualties. And a flood of these, these drug refugees wound up joining cults or dropping through the social cracks or falling into harder drug use. So LSD could turn people into environmental campaigners, or it could lead them to kidnap heiresses and murder pregnant movie stars. The very fact that LSD could have such different effects on users demonstrates, as McDonald again puts it, that taking LSD was like playing Russian roulette with the mind. And he describes this as an extraordinary demonstration of the contempt that the 60s uh, generation had for the, the shackles of tradition and conformity that they'd been brought up in during the post-war period. Uh, Timothy Leary would become probably one of the the leading figures of the LSD counterculture. Um, I believe William Burroughs once described him as a man who got so loaded that he forgot which government agency he was actually working for. Leary was a Harvard psychologist with an interest in psychedelics, and during World War II he'd been drafted into the Army Specialized Training Program and assigned to the psychology section. And he also spent some time studying at Georgetown University on an army-funded course. And yes, Georgetown is a CIA feeder school, but we're getting ahead of ourselves there. Um, So he'd made Sergeant and he'd been assigned as a staff psychometrician by the time that he was discharged in 1946. So Leary bounced between different clinical and academic posts and eventually he became a lecturer at Harvard and his imagination had been fired by a Life magazine article that he read in 1957 Uh, which was a piece by a guy called Gordon Wasson who had travelled to Mexico and explored the religious and mystical significance of magic mushrooms to the Mazatec people. Wasson was also the vice president of public relations for J.P. Morgan and he was an ethnomycologist whose research into the effects of psychedelic mushrooms was funded by the CIA. And Time Life will remember was operated by Henry Luce, who was extremely close to Alan Dulles and had gladly turned his outlets into propaganda arms of the agency. for another example of how spooked up time life was, consider that Charles Douglas Jackson was the managing director uh, of the company after the war. He'd been in the OSS between 1944 and 1945, and his time there overlapped with his stint the deputy chief of u.s psychological warfare and in the early 50s jackson had also played a major role in helping set up the bilderberg group of all things and he was also the man who bought the film of the jfk assassination from abraham zapruder uh, whereupon he locked it in a vault at time life so all of this understandably raises the question of why a CIA magazine was promoting the benefits of uh, psychedelic mushrooms as early as 1958. And in fact, why did the agency spread LSD to university campuses and the artistic community uh, through its MK Ultra trials during the same period? Now, I've seen it said that the entire counterculture was engineered by the CIA to disrupt and discredit the left and that they started doing this with the beats of the 1950s but the beats weren't nearly as influential as the flower children would become and despite what we see in some you know mass media accounts of the time depicting these artistic seekers traveling across America to find the dream the culture of the 1950s was one of stifling conformity and quiet desperation so it was in every respect the ideal cia society so i've never really been persuaded by the idea that they were attempting to capture the beats in a concerted way or that everything that happened in the 60s was top to bottom some kind of intelligence psyop you know i just don't think that e howard hunt um knew what an aeolian cadence was, not how to write a smash hit number one single, sorry. But my feeling is that by 1958, the agency's research into hallucinogenics had convinced them that drugs like uh, psilocybin and LSD, if used for a long enough time, promoted a high degree of introversion and narcissism and delusion. And in some cases, they could even trigger psychosis. And now think about what we discussed last episode, about how C. Wright Mills and other cultural commentators and sociologists were anticipating that the economic and historical context was just right, for some kind of mass, grassroots swell of political engagement to blossom in the 1960s, and consider the various academic institutions the CIA was plugged into, where sociologists and historians and economists and political analysts made predictions about the future based on the present and the past. I'm willing to bet that the CIA was reading all the literature, all the dissertations and academic journals that were coming out of these institutions, And I think they agreed with C. Wright Mills about where the wind was blowing, only the agency felt dread at the idea of a looming groundswell of enthusiasm for leftist politics. And in that scenario, I think it makes sense from their point of view to start promoting the use of these drugs as a way for would-be radicals to achieve enlightenment. Faster than the squares attending, you know, endless meetings and sittings. Uh, A kind of quirky novel adjunct to the infiltration and wrecking ops that they already ran as standard practice. My feeling is they didn't engineer the counterculture as such, but they did anticipate something like the counterculture emerging. And they sought to subvert and manipulate it wherever possible. The use of drugs as a form of social control does actually have precedent too, uh, we should point out here. Uh, Tribes have used them as a form of bonding uh, going back thousands and thousands of years, or they've used drugs to gain greater insight and wisdom. Uh, The British used opium to gain leverage over China. The Nixon administration freely admitted that heroin was a prize tool in discrediting and othering the hippies and black activists. And while I was prepping this episode, I found an essay that I've now forgotten the title of, but it referenced an Italian historian called Piero Camparisi. He wrote a fascinating book called Bread of Dreams on exactly this topic of social control. He describes how medieval Europeans, especially peasants, may well have spent large portions of their lives drifting in a kind of medicated reverie, owing to the use of opiates and shrooms as a way to to blunt pain from hunger and disease and to kind of escape the drudgery of crushing poverty and endless warfare. Opiates especially were administered to people no matter what their age as a way to take the edge off the day-to-day grind of life. He also describes how officials in medieval Italy would sometimes spike bread mills in especially restive or troublesome towns in order to numb the population and avert potential uprisings or drive them into a frenzy so that they had a pretext to brutally clamp down on them. Uh, Here's a quote from Bread of Dreams, quote, Mastofani, judge of provisions in the square of Modena, was arrested, along with the bakers, for having had 40 sacks of bay leaf ground to be put into the wheat flour to make bread for the square, where it caused the poverty of those who bought it to worsen, so that for two days there were many people sick enough to go crazy, and during this time they could not work or help their families." Jolly West was also fully on board with the idea of using drugs to socially engineer US society. He described how governments could achieve total control through either supply or prohibition. It depended what leaders wanted to achieve. And he described how the total or partial prohibition of drugs offers governments greater leverage for control. For example, through the use of no-knock raids against selected parts of the population. And not coincidentally, he references Aldous Huxley in this same statement and Huxley, as we know, accurately predicted how governments of the future would use chemistry and therapy to manage societies instead of immediately resorting to force. Timothy Leary was inspired to track down the magic mushrooms described in the Time Life article and whether he was moved to do so by someone connected to the agency in his own day-to-day life or whether he did it out of genuine curiosity is kind of irrelevant because LSD captured so much of his attention once he tried it that he became deeply enmeshed in a world of intelligence and psyops anyway and we do know for sure now that Larry was snitching people out to the FBI so it wouldn't surprise me at all if he was a willing CIA asset or even if he was an agent. We know a lot now about what they allowed agents to get up to during the 60s and the lengths they allowed them to go to to establish convincing cover stories. But Larry truly seems to have had his mind blown by acid. And when he first tried it, he became convinced that he discovered the key to unlocking a higher plane of existence. Uh, he was given to grandiose proclamations anyway. Uh, after the Beatles released Revolver, He described them as, I've got the quote here, wait a minute, avatars of a new species of human, a merry prototype for a new race of laughing freemen. And while Leary was at Harvard, he hooked up with a guy called Dr. Henry Murray. And by 1960, Leary was conducting acid tests on students and volunteers. And Dr. Murray was head of the department of social relations at the university. Dr. Murray had connections to both the Pentagon and the CIA, and he was also involved in research experiments on human test subjects. And many of them are very similar to the interrogation research the CIA was conducting as part of MKUltra. From which I think it's safe to conclude that Murray was himself part of the project. Uh, Murray's students would be asked to volunteer for an experiment that he said was designed to help the U.S. government win the Cold War. So you know. In his own mind, he's not telling a lie there. And thereafter, they were required to submit personal essays and encouraged to share their deepest secrets and desires. And in addition, Murray's assistants would also collect personal information about the students from their personnel records. And then, the students would be wired up to brain and heart monitors in dark rooms, and sometimes they'd be drugged and sometimes not. But all of them would be subjected to hours of devastating psychological abuse designed to test the limits of their defenses. And one of Murray's best known test subjects was none other than Ted Krasinski, who became the Unabomber. Leary also experimented on prison inmates with LSD, and Dr. Murray closely supervised these trials. And meanwhile, Word was spreading about this new wonder drug that some far-out professor at Harvard was giving out for free, and a trickle of figures from the beat scene made their way to the campus and volunteered for trials. Alan Ginsberg, the poet, he was one of the first, and then Jack Kerouac, Ken Casey, Charles Minger, some more followed. Uh, in fact, Ken Casey ended up getting a job at a hospital where LSD trials were taking place just so he could steal the drug and distribute it to all his friends in the artistic community. And they were all of them, to one degree or another, um, extremely taken with acid. And Ginsburg, Leary, and Leary's friend and colleague, Richard Alpert, they were effectively full-on evangelicals. And after he was fired by Harvard, Leary and Alpert touched base with Aldous Huxley and Humphrey Osmond, who both thought that LSD was full of revolutionary potential, but raised an eyebrow at Leary's conduct. While Huxley and Osmond were compelled by the the kind of deep existential and philosophical possibilities of acid, Leary had already converted the Hitchcock siblings, Billy, Tommy and Peggy, and uh, they gave Leary and his crew free use of their vast mansion in upstate New York. Now, the Hitchcock siblings were heirs to the Mellon fortune, Andrew Mellon, had been the archetypal American captain of industry and deep political actor. His wealth came from banking, oil, and chemical industry. I believe he founded Gulf Oil, actually. He died in 1937, and his family took over his businesses. And one of their companies that they owned, uh, the Aluminum Company of America, freely did business with um, the Nazis all through World War Two. Uh, his son, Paul, had been a member of the OSS, and... Numerous philanthropic foundations that Paul set up became conduits for CIA funds. And from 1963 to 1968, Leary attracted an ever larger following of seekers who dropped by the Mellon Mansion and explore their inner space from dropout kids to stars of Hollywood and the music industry. Uh, Humphrey Osmond described Leary as a man who lives in a totally hypothetical future. And when supplies of acid started to dwindle in the early 60s, threatening the future of the CIA's research programs, the Hitchcock siblings and numerous other figures in American business and pharmaceuticals stepped in to help ensure a steady supply of LSD to the states. And the CIA also established a deal with Sandoz in Switzerland For supply, at least until the agency's own chemists could finally crack the chemical composition of the drug and learn how to synthesize it themselves. And the agency also used its influence with the U.S. Food and Drug Administration to ensure that LSD was distributed to MKUltra subprojects all over the country in a timely manner. We'll be getting into the CIA's subversion of the counterculture in more detail as we go along, but we'll briefly return to Sidney Gottlieb. Uh, by the early 1960s, we're told, he concluded that mind control was an impossibility. MK Ultra supposedly, was wound down by 1963 or 1964, and the CIA chalked it up as a noble failure. Gottlieb continued to make poisons and gadgets for the CIA but MKUltra was a dead end. Or was it? We know the CIA destroyed the vast majority of its documentation about the project. We know that MKUltra was actually preceded by at least two other research programs and we know that they did succeed in reliably breaking a person's psyche and even extracting accurate information from them throughout the 1940s and 50s. I don't think MKUltra ended at all. I think they just renamed it something else and shifted from focusing on drugs to looking at the potential of technology and mass media instead. When you look at the the nature of the research that was conducted um, on American university campuses going through the late 1960s and beyond into the the ways that human beings and machines and computers interacted with each other. Uh, and then, you know, the studies at like Rand Corporation and things like that, all stuff that was funded in one way or another by the CIA, the development of the ARPANET, and then the development of what became the modern internet. I don't think you can look at that and not think that, uh, to at least some degree, much of what we now take for granted in our modern world—you know, uh, the internet, communications, and whatnot—were at least partly MK Ultra offshoot projects. Um, and if you look at what the internet is today, then what you find is it's a highly successful effort at reengineering society. You know, you have surveillance, subversion, control, and manufactured consent all bound up in the form of social media and the algorithm. People log on every day and to one degree or another traumatize themselves, you know, by doom scrolling, chasing terrible news, watching horrifying videos, arguing endlessly with complete strangers they'll never actually meet face to face, And all of this helps keep us all quite medicated in a strange way. Now, I imagine at some point I will do an episode where I go into far more detail about the use of the internet, you know, as a form of social control and whatnot. Uh, But that is not tonight because we have been going for long enough by now. So yeah, what I think we could wrap with is this. So I don't think MKUltra technically ended And as we've discussed, they did in fact achieve the ability to destroy a person's ego. So what remains then is to wonder if they ever managed to fill the resulting void, as Gottlieb said. Did they ever manage to program a human being to act in a way they normally wouldn't? Did they ever manage to program someone to kill? That's something that we're going to be looking at in episodes to come in our little mini-series here. And I implore you to trust me when I say that I haven't gone entirely off the deep end, but things are going to get even weirder from here on out. (laughs) So, as ever, thanks for listening. Uh, Leave us a rating and review on iTunes if you haven't already. And remember that you can sub and share some love on the ghost stories for the end of the world Patreon. Urge on friends and loved ones and don't get captured. Thanks a lot, guys.